What's up? Welcome back to Guitar Blah Blah, the daily podcast for people that just can't shut up about guitar. And be sure to check out axesandblades.com for even more guitar content. If you listened to yesterday's episode, the marathon that it was, I talked about having a bunch of kind of guitar history stuff on my mind because I'd been doing some writing about that recently on something that I'm going to talk about uh, pretty soon coming up on the podcast. And I just had a bunch of other stuff swirling in my head that wasn't exactly the stuff I'd written about with some kind of thoughts and conclusions like I talked about yesterday and also just some specific things and stories and bits of gear and guitars and things that um, you know maybe aren't the most talked about the the gear the kind of gearheads and the the guitar history buffs and all this will know far more about these things than me and will know about these things but um, there were a few little bits that came up that I wanted to share specifically as well as kind of my thoughts like I did on yesterday's podcast about some some cool little things that get me thinking about guitar in general and, and just were I think worth sharing and yesterday I talked about the kind of innovators of guitar from the past from uh, way back in the kind of birth of the solid body electric guitar as well as things that can apply to any decade and any era of guitar and really not just guitar anything thinking about who are the people that get remembered and why is that and what are the factors that contribute to that and if we apply that to today who are the big innovators of today that that will be really important when we look back on this time whether they get kind of the most remembered or not who do you think for you living in this moment are the the people who we should look to and be thankful that they're there doing cool stuff stuff like that well instead of just looking at the people and the inventors which is a big important thing for me that stands out the most um i also wanted to do a quick follow-up and think about a kind of parallel idea idea related to it as well as uh which people get remembered which innovations get remembered and Usually, um, it's a bit kind of easier to answer that question in terms of it's usually which ones we're still using years and years later. Lots more factors, lots more blabbing on about the kinds of things I did yesterday about so many different factors coming to what gets remembered and what doesn't. Um, But instead of going into that kind of theorizing and analyzing side of it, um, just going with the, the vague idea of things that work and things didn't, I think it's cool when I was looking back at the kind of very early days of the electric guitar and going into the kind of transition to solid body electric guitars there are some really cool interesting experiments that went on um that you know you might know about you might not know about but either way i think are cool to bring up and get thinking about again are there any parallels to today things that are coming up which have a great foundation to them but might not work out as an idea in some way or another and um, looking at some of the versions from the past kind of drawing parallels to today and one of the ones that really really struck me um, it's kind of everything about this model is really interesting and the story and the history of it is interesting but specifically it's one of the most fascinating pickups you're ever going to see and this is going back to 1940 and this is the Gibson ES300 um now if you've ever seen a gibson es300 you might have seen a particular kind of model uh, especially one of the post-war models um uh which was kind of from around about 1942 when the u.s and the second world war and things you've got um gibson and oh, this was the same with any factories manufacturing gibson uh obviously uh shifted their manufacturing capabilities and their use of resources into helping out with the war effort 
and so therefore not building guitars and during the the war years there were only a few acoustic guitars leaving the factory and specifically the electric instruments required uh some materials uh for the electronics and things like that that were too precious and too useful for the war effort and so it wouldn't be used and of course the demand for instruments was very low anyway especially kind of any of the high-end electric instruments so they weren't making those that of course includes the es300 because the es300 when it came out was gibson's fancy deluxe it was their first kind of super fancy top of the line uh electric guitar if you like and when you've seen the S three hundreds, more the ones that are more common, kind of the post war ones or the ones actually from maybe forty one instead of nineteen forty. After some tweaks were made, uh, you might think, "What's so special about the pickup?" I'm going to be interested to hear because it looks kind of like a normal pickup. Well. If you're thinking that, you've definitely seen one of the later ones because when the ES300 was originally released, this is the great thing about when you look at <laughs> anything in its beginnings. It's the same if you look at like any kind of art form or whatever, any kind of invention from the beginnings. Uh, there's no rule book. There's no set template with which people are then playing or vary, varying from or kind of, yeah, either being derivative from or diverging from. And so you end up with a lot of kind of shots in the dark or things based upon kind of logic rather than fashion or the basis of what's there because that basis isn't there the fashion isn't there these guys were really going out on a limb guys like gibson with um guitar not being necessarily an amplified instrument still in uh, a lot of its uses it wasn't many uh, already growing but amongst a public who you could sell a lot of guitars to rather than just professionals um not a huge thing, uh, not a huge market. So they were kind of just judging and just testing the waters. And that meant the ideas also tested the waters as well as the fact that there was no kind of rule book. There was no idea of whether this was totally crazy or not. The whole thing was totally crazy. Building all of these guitars was crazy. And some of the examples I talked about yesterday fit into that. So what is most striking about the ES300? How do you know if you've definitely seen one of the 1940s, the earlier ES300s? Well, it has a single pickup on it, and this pickup is absolutely massive. It runs basically all the way from the bridge up to the base of the neck. One pickup that is that big, all the way from the bridge to the base of the neck, set diagonally so that it is um, right up close to the neck on the bass strings and right down at the bridge on the treble strings. Um, that the idea behind that is basically for the players at the time it was to give a greater balance and a closer sound to the acoustic instruments they were used to playing when amplified Uh, something that players were chasing because the, the idea of amplification didn't come from let's you know obviously let's throw a bunch of effects and distortion and think of all the things we could do it was literally just practicality with the size of the bands increasing with the size of the venues increasing with the changes to the music that was being played and the way that the guitar was becoming a uh instrument used in a different way used in certain prominent ways uh, it needed to be amplified that was it and basically a lot of players wanted it to sound kind of just like the acoustic just like the unplugged guitars they were used to playing but it was louder. That was it. Um, kind of like the ultimate clean tone. Now we like clean tone with characters and all of the kind of character to them, flavor. Uh, the amps we describe as the best clean amps add a lot. They don't just obviously sound like that. There's years of character and decades of music and character to inform what we think of as a clean sound. And in those days, it was literally just, I want this, but it's louder. Um, so the idea was that the pickup being that extreme uh, set uh, with the pole pieces underneath the strings at, th- at those instances uh, going all the way from the neck to the bridge would give the kind of 
um, best way of recreating the kind of deep bassy sounds on the low strings and then giving the higher chime to the treble. Fascinating idea. Another couple of things that were interesting about this pickup, other than the way that it looks and that idea behind it, this was one of the first pickups using the, uh, at the time, new alloy, Alnico. So obviously that was something that definitely stuck around. The use of Alnico was really a complete experiment uh, experiment in this pickup. Um, again, there was no basis for that's what you use for pickups to sound a certain way. It was a brand new thing that was tried here and obviously that did stick around. So that's interesting. The other thing that stuck around was this was the uh, first pickup out on the market. This was the first pickup on any of these mass manufactured electric guitars. Did someone do this in a basement somewhere first? Maybe, I don't know. But this was the first, this is seen as the first pickup with adjustable pole piece. This is what, so fascinating in that way again something which carries on in pickup design was in this guitar as well so as i've already mentioned if you see guitars outside of the kind of kind of first few couple of runs of the es 300 obviously anything post-war but even anything into 1941 you don't see this big pickup anymore in 1941 they changed it to a pickup at the bridge which is a kind of similar idea for the pickup a similar thing but way 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 shrunk down it's at the bridge and it's still angled so it's angled um, in the exact same manner but it's nowhere near as big it takes up not that much more space than um, you know, a, a kind of P90. If you took a P90 and angled it in the bridge so that you had the closest to the bridge at the treble strings and then going more towards the neck, diagonally up uh, towards the bass strings, takes up no more space really than a kind of P90 if you if you stuck it at that angle. Why did they change to that? And then in the, in the um, later guitars and in the post-war versions of the ES300 before it got replaced by the ES350 as kind of the big deluxe model from Gibson, um, electric model, uh, it was... Uh, then later on, you see it with like a, the new the new pickup they had, which was the P90, the P90 uh, kind of in a, basically in the neck position, um, single P90 in the neck kind of thing. And then there were other variations of this that you saw, lots of variations of the post-war model with the ES300. They did a ton of other experiments. Um, first time you see going towards what we're used to seeing with the Gibson you know, with the with the inlays and the headstock, it starts to look a lot more like the Gibson we 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 are used to knowing. A lot of that were experimentations and things brought first to the ES three hundred, which we then become you know used to seeing later. I think if you look at the post war ES three hundreds, you really start to see like yes, this is definitely where you're used to seeing Gibsons aesthetically and everything like that. Um, also, the movement away from uh, kind of everything being arch top design and carved tops and backs and going to flat laminates and um, kind of instead of the big arch tops having like maple, uh, like highly figured beautiful maple, but not with the grand carving because of the realization, hey, if this is an amplified instrument, it doesn't really gain nearly as much as an acoustic instrument as all this carving so why are we doing this super labor intensive arch top kind of construction why not do this kind of flat flat laminate construction and stuff like that um that was also brought in on the es 300 post-war which is fascinating but why did they get rid of the big pickup so fast obviously they did lots of other experimentations with the es 300 it went through lots of other changes it was their base for kind of experimenting and, and really driving innovation and new ground in the solid body electric guitar and actually the es300 is a fascinating instrument to follow as a kind of thread to track the development of electric guitars and then it moves into the solid body era obviously and things kind of change and and, and obviously the, the big models obviously look very different to the es300 but following 
you know, into that era, before that era, and just going into it, the ES300 is a fantastic way to follow the development of early electric guitar from kind of 1940 into the early 50s, because um, it goes through a lot of these changes, and definitely to follow how Gibson developed things and how they contributed to that story. But where did the giant pickup go, and why didn't we see a bunch of other guitars from maybe Gretsch and all these other places playing with that design if it was such a key element of tone at that point did, did tastes change what was it no like i said sometimes with innovations it's much easier to answer the question of where did they go rather than the innovator whilst there was a lot of good to the idea whilst it brought you know the use of alnico angling of pickups uh adjustable uh adjustable pole pieces you know whether these things were done to some extent before or after the ES300 was huge in bringing those to the market and bringing those to players and making those ideas stick around to the present day as things that that uh, pickup makers and guitar makers use and experiment with. But unfortunately, the gigantic big one from the 1940 versions of the ES300 were just too big. They actually got in the way of players playing. Um, it was hard to, depending on you, how your technique was with your picking, it actually just got in the way. And so for practical reasons, it needed to change. Pretty as simple as that, as, as the record goes, that is apparently it. But a fascinating design. And if you see NES 300 with this giant pickup, it's an absolutely wild looking guitar that just reminds you that that was the days when there was not a rule book to either decide to diverge from or to follow or any blend of those. It was just creating, like I said, from logical spaces. Musicians need this. This is a way to do it. And the kind of inventors and interesting people of the time, the geniuses were able to do that. Now, following on from yesterday, I was talking all about it would be kind of ironic of me if I didn't mention who brought about this innovation, who invented this pickup, because I was talking about sometimes people getting overlooked. And this was a fascinating invention that, like I said, had a lot of things about it, which are still here in pickup design and guitar guitar design today. And it was an important part of an important model uh, in an important time in the development of the electric guitar. Uh, So this pickup was designed by Walter Fuller. And uh, these were all his ideas coming together and formed the basis of something fascinating and is fascinating actually in itself uh, to look back upon now. So really, really cool. Anyway, that's enough guitar history nerding out for today. I want to bring you, as always, we finish with some music because it's all about listening to music. I want to suggest that you go and check out an, uh, an album from a band that I've already suggested pretty recently on this podcast, but I'm really enjoying their stuff. So I want you to go and check out the album Running From The Blows by Adult Books. Link to that in the description, as always. So you can click on that nice and easy. Go and check that out. As always, go and listen to a bunch of music, get inspired, play a bunch of guitar, and I will catch you again tomorrow.